I want you to turn with me to the book of Psalms, to Psalm 17. I have preached my way in years past through the entire Psalter, and yet there were a few individual Psalms that I was unable to address that are in the commentary that I've written on the book of Psalms, but have not been a part of the public exposition for us as a church family. And one of those neglected Psalms is Psalm 17. And I want us to look at this this morning. We just sung to the risen Lamb. And there must be a realization within each one of our hearts that there is a price that we pay to be identified with the risen Lamb. That there is resistance and opposition that we encounter in this world. And some of you have experienced that even over these holidays as it is a a family time because we don't all come from Christian families and we don't have all of us Christian in-laws. And the holidays are both the best of times and the worst of times, depending upon where you are in your Christian life and where your family is and bringing loved ones together. And it it can often be the most difficult of times to be confined in a in a den and at a dinner table with unbelievers. And there's just a a total disconnect your life and and their life. And it becomes very apparent. And there is at times pushback for others of us here today. You work in a in an office or in, a, in the marketplace, and you may have an unsaved boss who does not think highly of Christianity. And there is a certain price that you pay for your faith because you are known in that sphere of influence that you have as a true believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. And whether it is someone who is over you or someone who is around you, there nevertheless, if you're truly flying the the flag of your faith, and others know who you are and where you stand, there are times of resistance that we all face. It really depends where God has placed you. It's not the same for all of us. And another factor is where you serve in the body of Christ. And the more visible you are, and the more you are a part of leadership, spiritual leadership, there also comes a cost factor in serving the Lord and having to make very visible and public decisions to follow Christ that leaves you marked out and very vulnerable in your faith. Such was the experience of David in this particular psalm. It is a psalm in which we soon discover that David is suffering at the hands of others who are around him because of his faith in the Lord. In fact, for David, it's a very dangerous place. It is near life-threatening. I don't think any of us here today are really in a life-threatening situation because of our faith in Christ. Others around the world this very morning, as they gather in worship, there are people in other lands who are paying an enormous price for their faith in Jesus Christ. But for us, where the Lord has placed us, it's not quite at that point, but it should be easy for us to identify with David in this particular psalm. There are those who are slandering him. We can relate to that. There are those who are calling into account his values and 
his core beliefs. He is being abused by others to the point that his adversaries are stalking him and they are hunting him like a a lion and they are trying to ambush him when he least expects it and to, to seize the moment. These are not insignificant people. They are prosperous. They are successful. They have influence. They have clout. They can bring great harm. In fact, they are called lethal, meaning they have the power to bring life-taking devastation upon his life. So I want to begin by just reading the first portion of this psalm, and I want us to, to consider this. Because we all need to be encouraged this day. How do we respond when we find ourselves um, being opposed for our faith? Some of you parents are being challenged by even your own children who do not buy into what they perceive to be uh, a rigid form of Christianity or a narrow definition of truth. And some of your children, perhaps, even just want to go their own way, which is ungodly. And a failure to honor father and mother, which is the breaking of the fifth commandment. And some of you mothers, some of you fathers have have paid a price in your Christian parenting because your teenager, your child has resisted what you have held up to be the standard, the Christian standard for this home. You will be able to identify with David. And this psalm. Let me begin by just reading the first portion of this psalm. Hear a just cause, O Lord, give heed to my cry. Give ear to my prayer, which is not from deceitful lips. Let my judgment come forth from your presence. Let your eyes look with equity. You have tried my heart. You have visited me by night. You have tested me and you find nothing. I have purpose that my mouth will not transgress. As for the deeds of men, by the word of your lips, I have kept from the paths of the violent. My steps have held fast to your paths. My feet have not slipped. I have called upon you for you will answer me, O God. Incline your ear to me. Hear my speech. Wondrously show your loving kindness. O Savior of those who take refuge at your right hand. From those who rise up against them. Keep me as the apple of the eye. Hide me in the shadow of your wings. From the wicked who despoil me. My deadly enemies who surround me. They have closed their unfeeling heart. With their mouth they speak proudly. They have now surrounded us in our steps. They set their eyes to cast us down to the ground. He is like a lion and eager to tear. And as a young lion lurking in hiding places. Arise, O Lord, confront him, bring him low. Deliver my soul from the wicked with your sword. From men with your hand, O Lord, from men of the world whose portion is in this life and whose belly you fill with treasure. They are satisfied with children and leave their abundance to their babies. As for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. I will be satisfied with your likeness when I awake. 
In this psalm, David uses language that is drawn from the, from the courtroom. David sees himself as a defendant who has been, who has suffered charges that have been brought against him. His enemies are, are prosecutors. And they are prosecuting him in the court of public opinion, in the ears of others in the kingdom. And David, rather than answering his prosecutors, David, who is as a defendant, he makes his appeal to the only judge that there is. He makes his appeal to God, who is the supreme judge of of heaven and earth. And all that matters, David understands, is that he be acquitted in, in God's estimation. That he not cave in to the, the pressures of his enemies and spend his life answering them. But he takes his appeal to the highest court that there is, to the court of heaven and earth, and he makes his appeal to God as he comes before the Lord. This psalm should serve as a model prayer for each one of us when we feel persecuted, when we feel resisted, when we feel opposed for our faith in Jesus Christ. And the Bible does say, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. So this is a very relevant psalm. As you would seek to outline this psalm with me, let me give you just the main headings of this psalm. And I think one value in a, in a longer psalm, this one is almost in that category, a good outline helps walk through the many verses. First, there's a cry for vindication in verses 1 and 2. And then a cry for examination, verses 3 through 5. Then there is the cry for protection in verses 6 through 12. And then a cry for confrontation, verses 13 to 14. And finally, a cry for glorification in verse 15. This is the the outline that we will follow as we work our way through this psalm. Please note where this begins. It is a cry for vindication. David begins this psalm by appealing to God, who is the righteous judge of heaven and earth. And this is where our appeal must begin as well. In verse 1, he says, Hear a just cause, O Lord. It is as though he is approaching the judge's bench and he is presenting his case to God. He is presenting the case of his life to God. Uh, What is implied here is that there has been prosecution that has been brought against him and condemnation by his foes and by his adversaries. And, And David understands his life to be a just cause. Now, as David pleads his case, he is not denying that he is not a sinner. David knows that he is a sinner. He is not claiming to be sinless. He is claiming to be blameless regarding the specific charges that his enemies have assailed him with. He believes that his life, his leadership, his teaching, the decisions that he has made, that it has been a just cause and it is his enemies 
who have misrepresented him and maligned him before others. Now, there is a tone of urgency in this prayer, meaning David is, is, at, a, is at a breaking point. Hear a just cause, O Lord. Give heed to my cry. We can hear him pleading with God. This is no passive, stoic type of praying, but this is the kind of prayer that arises out of the depths of one's soul when they are being crushed in the extremities of life. He says, give ear to my prayer, which is not from deceitful lips. He is being charged with having deceitful lips. He is being charged with being duplicitous. He is being charged with hypocrisy. He is being charged with speaking out of both sides of his mouth. He has been slandered by others. But before God, he says, hear my prayer, which is not from deceitful lips. In fact, the very opposite is true. Those who rise up against me, they are the ones who have deceitful lips. They are the one who are misrepresenting reality before others. David is defenseless. All of this is going on behind his back. All of this is going on out in the kingdom. There is no way that David can be everywhere at one time and put out all of the little fires that are that are igniting against him. All David can do in this situation is to take the matter immediately before the Lord. In verse two, he says, let my judgment come forth from your presence. His judgment is God's judgment upon his life. He is asking that God evaluate and that God test the facts and that God bring the verdict. Regardless of what men may say, he desires that God's judgment will come forth. In other words, he's saying, God, you be the judge of my life. You judge me and you vindicate me. Your translation may even have the word vindication mentioned there. Uh, to be vindicated is to be judged and to be found to be blameless. In David's heart, he knows that the charges are not true that have been thrown against him. He says at the end of verse 2, let your eyes look with equity. And the word equity here means justice, uh, a true verdict, a, a, a true Judgment that would come. This is where this psalm begins in David's heart. He brings the matter before God in a cry of vindication and asks that God judge his life. Requires a man who has a pure heart and pure hands to ask for such investigation, does it not? As he invites the Lord to look into his life and to judge him. I think there's something for all of us to learn here, especially young people here today. We too, we too many times put too much weight on what other people have to say about us. Rather than all that ultimately matters is what is God's verdict on my life. What is God's judgment? What is God's vindication of my life? I've told you before, if you please God, it does not matter whom you displease. And if you displease God, it does not matter whom you please. 
In this sense, the Christian life is very simple. We are to please God in everything. That is in David's heart, and David believes that to be true in his life. He knows that he is not righteous in the absolute sense, but he believes that he is in a relative sense, in the specific charges that are brought. And David would probably say, I am glad that my enemies do not know more about me of what is really true. But it is what they see that they come against me, David is saying, that is not true. If you find yourself the object of persecution, opposition, ridicule, whether you are in the workplace or whether you're in your home or whether you're at school or whether you're with your friends, I would encourage you to do what David does here and to bring the matter before God and to say, hear a just cause, O Lord. Give heed to my prayers. I want you to know, second, a cry for examination. David makes himself very transparent before God. He invites the investigation of God's all-searching holiness and righteousness to penetrate into his life. In fact, he acknowledges that it has been this way every day of his life. And notice what he says. You have tried my heart. Notice the verb tense, that, that God has already been trying his heart. The fact of the matter is, every day of David's life, he knows it is an open book before God. There are no secrets in heaven with God regarding the true spiritual state of his life. And that God tries his heart, not the, the external, not the peripheral, not that which just lies on the surface. God sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance. God looks upon the heart. And God looks upon our hearts every moment of every day. And that is the real you. Not your packaging and not how you posture yourself and present yourself before others, the real you, the real me, is who I am and what I am in the depths of my heart and in my soul. And David acknowledges that you have tried my heart. Now, this verb tried really comes from the, the, the realm of smeltering with uh, metals. To take, to take a, a metal and to put it into a furnace and to turn the heat up and the false alloys begin to separate and they rise to the surface and they are skimmed off the top. And what is left behind is the pure, precious metal. That is the testing process that is to be tried in the furnace. And, and David understands that every moment of every day, God is trying his heart and testing and examining his heart. And God sees the, the false alloy in his life. And God sees what is genuine in his life. And David knows that God tries his secret thoughts, his inner motives, his hidden desires. Later in Psalm 26 and in verse 2, he will say to the Lord, examine me, O Lord, and try me. Test my mind and my heart. That is something that we should say to God on a, on a regular basis. God, examine me. 
God, try me. God, test me. God, inspect me. And reveal to me what you see in me that needs to be addressed in my life. And most of us, myself foremost, are very skilled in picking out the impurities in others' lives while we remain blind to our own weaknesses and how we need to ask God to examine us and to make known to us that which God sees in our lives. Psalm 139, verses 23 and 24 should be our regular prayer to God if we are to be like David and to be a man after God's own heart. In Psalm 139, verse 23, David says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts and see if there be any hurtful way in me and lead me in the everlasting way. Just as Joshua and Caleb went into the promised land and scouted it out and and searched it out and looked into the valleys and into the mountains to see what was there in the promised land. Even so, we must ask God to do the same in our own hearts. And to bring to the surface that which is hurtful in our lives. It is hurtful to God. It is hurtful to us. He goes on to say in verse 3, You have visited me by night. Meaning, God has drawn near to David. And God has inspected David's life by night. And the emphasis upon night is when no one else is around, when no one else is looking, when the crowd is not there, when other people are not with me, which serves as somewhat of a restraint in my life. At night, when you really are what you truly are, when you are in the dark and no one can see, When you do not put on appearances, David acknowledges, God, you are there and God, you see in the dark and you see what others do not see about my life. My enemies go to bed at night, but you are awake. He who watches over Israel shall neither slumber nor sleep. And God remains awake and God remains and vigil and alert. And God is always looking into the innermost crevices of not just David's heart, but of your heart and and my heart. You have visited me by night. You have tested me, and note, and you find nothing. Someone may say, how could David say that? David's a sinner. Read 1 and 2 Samuel. Read the rest of the Bible and see what David is. And David knows he is a sinner as well. But in these matters that have been charged against him before others, David knows that they are unfounded and that they are untrue and they are a gross misrepresentation of reality. He says, you have tested me and you find nothing, nothing of which he has been accused, nothing of which others seek to bring him down with. I have purposed that my mouth will not transgress. In other words, what he is saying here, as others have slandered me, I have purposed not to retaliate in like manner. 
I have chosen not to come down to their level and to transgress with my mouth. But I have purpose to speak only that which is true and wholesome and godly. And this is a mature man who can control his own tongue, especially when he is being attacked by others. James tells us that it is only the wise man who is able to govern and control his tongue and his mouth. He does not overreact or try to redirect the retaliation back against his accusers. That's what he is saying at the end of verse 3. I have purposed that my mouth will not transgress. This is a word of wisdom for all of us as we would find ourselves in the exchange with other people. Verse 4, as for the deeds of men, by the word of your lips, I have kept from the paths of the violent. The words of God's lips refer to the law of God, the written law of God that finds expression as though God himself is speaking. And he has said, I have kept away from the paths of the violent. That implies that those enemies who are coming against David are on paths of violence, paths of iniquity, paths of transgression that find expression in the destruction of that which is good and godly and wholesome. David says that, no, I have kept your word and I have not been pulled away into the crowd. This is like Psalm 1. How blessed is the man who does not stand in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. David is saying, I will not be pulled into the powerful current and stream of what everyone else is doing and where everyone else is going. I have kept my feet in paths of godliness. In verse 5, he says, my steps have held fast to your paths. David's steps refer to the, the decisions and the choices that David makes on a daily basis, the way he conducts himself, the way he speaks, uh, the, his, his daily behavior. He says, my steps have held fast to your paths. This for David is a time that is not driving him away from the Lord, it is driving him closer to the Lord. He is not losing confidence in Scripture as he is suffering. He is deepening in his commitment to the Word of God. My steps have held fast to your paths. Notice paths is in the plural, and it indicates really the, the complexity and the diversity and the intricacies of the will of God for our lives. Sometimes it's pictured as just one path, and other times it's paths, plural. And it shows that every realm and every area of David's life is taken into consideration in this. And David is inviting God's examination of his life. It is as though, as he stands before the judge, he pre presents the evidence of his own life before God. And says, God, I have sought to follow your word. And as you examine me, you will see that what I have been charged of is a falsehood. 
He concludes verse 5 and says, My feet have not slipped. He has not fallen into sin. He has not been tripped by iniquities. He has not caved in to temptation. He has not buckled under peer pressure. He has not been tripped up by stumbling blocks. He, he has not fallen into transgression. He says, my feet have not slipped. And the reason why is because he has so attached himself to the word of God. It's been well said, either scripture will keep you from sin or sin will keep you from scripture. And there is a sanctifying power to the word of God in our lives in a relative sense. So David makes this very strong case before God. This is a case that every one of us needs to make before the Lord. That as we suffer for doing what is right, as we suffer for the sake of righteousness, rather than retaliating against those who would slander us or prosecute us, we should be as David and take the matter before God and to bring our life and our heart and our soul before God and to spread the evidence of our life before God and to acknowledge that the entirety of my life is known by God. I have been tried and tested at the very depths of my soul. And God, I trust that you find nothing in my life. that would wrongly bring about such slander. Now, James Montgomery Boyce, as he writes in this, on this psalm, says, we today, with the, the counseling movement, sometimes feel uncomfortable with making such statements like this, that David ought to be more self-deprecating, that David ought to be one who says, oh, no, there are so many faults in my life. I'm not worthy of anything. Oh, that is true. There are many faults in our lives. But between us and God, in a time like this, there needs to be in our lives integrity. There needs to be holiness. There needs to be righteousness. There needs to be a guard on our tongue. Our steps must hold fast to the paths that the Lord has assigned for us. And we must be like David and to be able to come before his throne of grace and say, God, you have examined me and tested me. And I trust that you find nothing. Of the charges that have been brought against me. That they are unfounded and untrue. And God, you know that there are many sins in my life. But what I have been accused of is not one of them. This is a man who is transparent before God. His life is an open book before the Lord. And I trust this day your life is an open book before God. Notice third, a cry for protection. In verse 6, David understands that 
the dangers that are surrounding him are are so real that he must cry out for God's divine protection at this very moment. He says in verse six, I have called upon you for you will answer me, O God. And please note what that is saying. God says the reason that I call upon you is because I know that you answer me. He is a man of faith. He is a man of confidence in God. He is assured that God hears his prayer and that God will answer his prayer. That this is not just a psychosomatic mental exercise that he goes through when he prays. That he truly believes there is a God in heaven and that this God hears his prayers and that this God will answer his prayers. There's no false humility here on David's part, but bold faith to approach the throne of God. And I call upon your name because I know that you answer me. He says, incline your ear to me, hear my speech. I think one thing we need to learn from this is that our prayers so many times are so tame and timid and docile. We're like little quiet librarians in the corners at times, mumbling out little nothing prayers. David is saying, God, incline your ear to me. Hear my speech. There needs to be this element of pouring out our heart and soul to God. It speaks to the extremities in which David finds himself. Wondrously show your loving kindness. He's asking that God display the wonders of his faithful love toward him. This word loving kindness is a very important word. It could be arguably one of the single most important words in the entire Old Testament. It is a Hebrew word that represents the unconditional covenant love of God that can never be broken as is exercised toward his own people, toward his own children. It is irrevocable. It is eternal. It is a sovereign love that God has only for his own children. He does not have it for the world. He does not have it for the world of the non-elect. It is reserved exclusively for God's own people. And David is clinging to this at this at this moment. And he is saying, God, show your faithful covenant, unbreakable love towards me that began in eternity past and will continue throughout eternity future. Show yourself to be faithful. And this is how he asks that God show his faithfulness. He says, O Savior of those who take refuge at your right hand. He understands that God is a deliverer of his people. When he says, O Savior, he is referring not so much to eternal salvation, though that is true. He is referring to temporal salvation of God rescuing his people out of their hour of affliction. O Savior of those who take refuge at your right hand. The right hand of God is that place of highest power and authority in the entire universe. 
And when we take refuge in the right hand of God, we are anchoring ourselves to omnipotence and to sovereignty. And by his grace, we are clinging to God's strength as God will act on our behalf in situations in which we are helpless to deliver ourselves, in which we are totally at the mercy of other people who would do us harm. We cling to the right hand of God. He goes on to define these who rise up against him at the end of verse seven from those who rise up against them. He says in verse eight, keep me as the apple of the eye. The apple of the eye is the pupil of the eye. If there is one part of your body that even instinctively you protect and guard, it is your pupil. In fact, we become uncomfortable when people get right in our face. We want to instinctively take steps back. And part of that is self-defense and self-protection. And when things come flying at us, objects, even out of the corner of our eye, we instinctively put a hand up or we duck because we protect the very apple of our eye, the pupil of our eye. It's the tenderest and dearest part that is that is so sensitive. And what God, what David is saying to God is keep me safe from the harm of others. Protect me as the apple of your eye. Is that not a beautiful picture, a beautiful imagery that we would be the very apple of God's eye? So tender, so precious, so sensitive to the heart of God. He appeals that God would protect him in this way. That David is not some callous in God's palm. That David is not a blister on, his, on God's heel, as it were, metaphorically. But that David understands that he is, because of God's covenant love, because of His loving kindness, because God set His heart upon Him in eternity past with distinguishing love that many waters cannot drown out. David has the confidence of knowing that he is in that tender place in the heart and the mind of God. And then he says, hide me in the shadow of your wings. It's another metaphor, another imagery of the protection that a mother bird gives to her young babies. In other words, God, shield me, protect me, hide me from the threatening praying birds that would come and do harm to me. God, I am safe in the shadow of your wings. In fact, in the, the ESV study Bible and in the ESV Bible and in the Reformation study Bible, the title for this psalm is drawn from this line, in the shadow of your wings. Uh, the translator, translators feel that this is the, the central theme running through this Psalm 17, that when we are attacked by others, we must be reminded that we remain in the shadow of God's wings. Nothing will ever come to us except it first pass through God's wings. 
And the only thing that comes into our lives is what an all-loving, covenant-keeping God allows to come for His glory and for our good. And that God is so sovereignly in control of the circumstances of our lives that He fends off all that would come against us that does not serve this higher purpose of His glory and our good. It says in verse 9, further defining these who come against Him, hide me from the wicked who despoil me. I had to look up this word despoil. It doesn't sound good, whatever it is. And the idea of the word despoil is to lay waste, to make desolate, to destroy, to cause to perish. And that is what the wicked are seeking to do. They're not neutral in his life. There there is no truce that has been called by David's enemies towards him. They are after him. And David knows this. And they seek to despoil him. He says, my deadly enemies who surround me. Please note the word deadly. They are life-threatening foes who seek to take his life. And they surround him, meaning it is inescapable. David is between a rock and a hard place. Just as you and I so often find ourselves, whether in family or in work situations or in networks of relationships, where we are in an inescapable place and circumstances will not allow us to retreat. We are there. We are surrounded. And God must be the one who comes to our aid. Verse 10, they have clothed, closed their unfeeling heart. Literally in the Hebrew, it is their fat heart. And there is a a double play on words that's going on with this. Their heart is fat. Their whole body is fat because they have the abundance of this world's possessions. They indulge themselves. They live in the lap of luxury. They have more than they need. They live for this world. They are consumed and caught up in the things of this world. There is no self-restraint in their lives. They, they are just grabbing for all of the gusto they can, and they just indulge themselves of this world. And because of that, they are fat. There is no lean on them. They have everything that the world has to offer. And because they are fat, their heart is also fat, meaning they are insensitive. There is just a blob of of, of fatty tissue around their heart. Their heart is no longer sensitive to the things of God. It never was sensitive to the things of God. And so because of that, the translator here in verse 10 in the New American Standard has translated it, their unfeeling heart. Literally, it's just their fat heart. They are fat heads with fat hearts and fat bodies. They're just stuffed full with the stuff of this world. And they give no concern and no care to the things of God. All they want to do is bring David down. It would be a notch in their belt. They have closed their fat, is literally what it says. And so therefore, notice at the end of verse 10, with their mouth they speak proudly. Oh, they are so arrogant. They speak as from on high. 
because they have so much of this world, everyone else caters to them. Everyone else hangs on their opinion because they are so rich in the things of this world. They have clout, they have influence, they have visibility, they have sway. And because of that, when they open their mouth, they speak as from on high. They have all the answers. And everyone just cowtails in behind them. And with their mouth, they speak proudly. They are egomaniacs strutting their way to hell is what they are. In verse 11, they have now surrounded us in our steps. They are tightening the circle around them. They are tightening the noose around them. These evil men have conspired together to set up an ambush to bring great harm to David's life, to take him out of his ministry, to take him out of his leadership, to take him out of his visible place. They set their eyes to cast us down to the ground. In the vernacular, we would say they want to take us down. They want to take us out. There is such hatred in the heart of such insensitive people towards the things of God and to the people of God that they cannot bear that the people of God continue in their ways. Verse 12, the description becomes more vivid. He is like a lion that is eager to tear. Notice the he. There is always a ringleader in every conspiracy. There is always a point person. There is always someone that the other carnal minds rally around and attach themselves to. And he becomes the, the speaker of the group and he becomes the mastermind of the conspiracy. And so verse 12, he is like a lion that is eager to tear. In other words, he is stalking David and seeking him like prey. And when he will leap out and pounce on David, he will shred him and tear him apart. And as a young lion lurking in hiding places, as a young lion wanting to... To, to make a name of himself and, and to kill his first prey and to, to go out and conquer with all of his virile strength, with all of his usefulness, lurking in hiding places, crouched, coiled, ready to spring upon him at the most unsuspecting times. I want to say again, the more visible we stand for the Lord, the more marked out we are to suffer like this. And when we are secret disciples like Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea, when we just try to blend in with the crowd, quite frankly, a psalm like this, it is almost impossible for us to even relate to it. It's almost like, Preacher, when will you get to something that's relevant for my life? But that's the problem. And if we were standing up and testifying of the Lord and flying our colors as God would have us to, there would be more relating to what David is experiencing in this psalm. If some parents were stronger with their children and gave more godly instruction and held the line, parents would 
more relate to the spirit of what David is saying here. And notice number four, verse 13, very quickly. A cry for confrontation. (laughs) David now speaks in strong military language. The, The psalm does not tail down at the end. The psalm escalates at the end. Arise, O Lord. And the language here is to call upon an army of of troops to, to go into battle. Arise, O Lord. Confront him. As though David is saying, God, take him on. Deal with him, God. Notice how David leaves vengeance with the Lord. Notice how David does not take matters into his own hand. Notice how David lives in peace with others as much as in him lies. Notice how David calls upon God to fight the battles because in reality, the battle belongs to the Lord. So he calls upon God, who is now more than the Supreme Court judge. Now he sees God as the divine warrior who will spring forth from behind the, the, the heavenly judgment bar and put on the full armor of God and to go forth and to fight David's battles for him. Confront him. Notice what he says next in verse 13. Bring him low. Can a Christian pray that? I believe David is a Christian or a believer. And for the sake of the kingdom, for the sake of the stability of the kingdom, he prays, God, bring this one down. If the charges are true against me, David would say, then bring me down. But if they be not true, then bring him down. Deliver my soul from the wicked with your sword. Please note, not with your ping pong paddle. Not with the, the backside of your hand. Uh, not with a, a, a reed or, or a branch. God, unsheath your sword. Your sharp, two-edged sword. And God, go forth and deliver my soul from the wicked. Speaks to how, how desperate the hour is in David's life. And how... Dramatic must be God's intervention into the affairs and circumstances of his life. And this goes way beyond David, but for the good of others and for God's glory. Verse 14, from men with your hand, O Lord, from men of the world. God, with that sovereign, omnipotent hand of yours, draw the sword and unleash its fury against men Men of the world. This is a rare Old Testament use of what will be amplified in the New Testament regarding these men who live for the world. They are of the world. They are full of the world. They live only for the world. They are part of the evil world system. His portion is in this life. In other words, all that they have that is good is the temporal things that are passing away of this life and whose belly you fill with your treasure. God is so good and he is so kind, even those who are outside of his loving kindness. 
God even feeds His enemies. God even causes the rain to fall on the just and the unjust. He causes the sun to shine even upon those who are His enemies. And God fills their belly with God's treasure. They are satisfied with children. God allows them, even even the unbelievers, God allows them in what some theologians would call common grace to be able to marry and to enjoy uh, the benefits of of having a spouse and, and having children and going through all of the seasons of life, even as those who do not know the Lord, God's goodness drips down upon them. And leave their abundance to their babies. We need to pray for such confrontation at times. This is certainly not a daily prayer. But there are strategic times that we may find ourselves in life in which the matters of the kingdom of God are at stake. And the higher purposes of the advancement of God's purposes here upon the earth that while we seek not vengeance from our own hands, we must call upon God to intervene. And if there not be repentance and faith, then for God to deal with them in a very decisive way. Finally, a cry for glorification. The psalm ends on an amazing up note. David is, is encouraged within his own heart as he has brought the whole matter out before God. David is not spiraling down into a black hole of depression and discouragement. No, David, the more he brings this before God, the more he places the matter before God, the more he sees with an eternal perspective, the more David is, is, is confident that his cause is a just cause and that one day... Though these wicked will perish, David shall see the Lord in heaven and there will be the consummation of his salvation. He says, as for me, that's very emphatic, meaning totally juxtaposed from these who would rail against me. As for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. I think this speaks of the beatific vision in Revelation 22, 4 and 5, in which the greatest blessing that shall ever come to any human being is to be in the presence of God and to behold the beauty of His holiness. There can be no greater satisfaction. There can be no greater pleasure than to behold the face of God in righteousness. David is taking the long look. He's not caught up in the temporal affliction of the hour. But he's looking beyond the, the, the adversities of this life and the, the scars that he bears from standing for the Lord. And he sees the final day and he sees him beholding the face of God. And he knows that it is all worth it to plant his feet onto the paths of God and to not be pulled away and to not back up as others would come against him, but to instead advance forward and place the matter before God and to take the long look and to to understand and to see that one day he will stand before God 
And all of this will be put in his proper perspective. And to the extent that he has suffered for the sake of righteousness, God shall recognize him and God shall reward him because his cause is a just cause. The judge on the final day shall reward him. He says, I will be satisfied with your likeness when I awake. This is an echo of the previous psalm in in Psalm 16, in which David says, I shall be satisfied when I awaken in your presence. You and I have no idea how satisfied we will be when that final day we behold his face. I must bring this to conclusion. This is a psalm that testifies that God takes sides. That God stands with the righteous. That God is opposed to the unrighteous. And that our appeal must always be to this righteous judge of heaven and earth. We must examine our lives. We must lay them before the Lord and ask God to shine the light that is brighter than 10,000 suns to be brought to bear upon our lives and to reveal to us whatever is hurtful that we can repent and confess of it. But as our cause is a just cause, as our feet are on the paths of righteousness, we may ask God to intervene in our lives. On our behalf. And for God as the divine warrior to fight our battles. And to go before us. And to unsheath the sword if necessary. And it is not an empty rattling of the sword. For when the Lord uses it in the day of battle. There will be no survivors. But those who stand with him. I trust you stand with Him. I trust that you stand with the Lord. You will never bear up against Him. And the day is coming when He will send His Son back. And there will be the final judgment of the living and the dead. There's only one place to stand. It is with Jesus Christ. To stand by grace upon Him. I trust that your faith has Christ as its object. And that you've laid hold to his mighty right hand. The battle belongs to the Lord. Let us pray. Father, forgive us. At times we've acted impetuously like Peter. And tried to draw a sword and take on your enemies. And we end up cutting off the ear of some slave and you were forced to pick it up and put it back onto their head as you did in the case of Peter at the garden. Lord, give us faith to trust you. Give us faith to put our confidence in you. That you must be the divine warrior who fights our battles and that you are the supreme judge whose verdict alone matters. Cause us to live lives that are singular and their focus and loyalty to you.